Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Great to be back with you, and it is certainly always good to be back in the Word of God together again. Today we are back in our study of 1 Thessalonians, and we are headed to one of the greatest passages found in Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. It is a passage that should bring comfort and hope to each of us in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is certainly coming back for his church. The responsibility for being ready rests with us. And this is why 1 John 2.28 proclaims, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. These believers at Thessalonica were waiting for the return of Christ, and they were confident that it could happen at any moment in time. But they had some different feelings and emotions running through the church. Some were anxious because they had loved ones, fellow believers who had already died, and they had some honest and legitimate concern about what would happen to those who had died when Christ returns. Paul addresses their concern about those dead in Christ in our text. Starting in verse 13, Paul tells them, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. It is common to teach that we should not focus too much on the specifics of the end times, but we see just the opposite of this in the Word of God. For Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they believe that believers in Jesus Christ should not be ignorant about the end times, because it directly affects them and how they live out their lives. Paul believed we can know about our glorious future in Christ. We can know some of what God has in store for the future because he wrote it down for us. And if we would just stick to a literal interpretation of the word of God, it really isn't all that hard. But it takes some effort. It takes some work. You have to get into the word of God. You have to compare scripture with scripture. You cannot expect to understand the end times unless you are willing to get into the word of God for yourself. The Christ-honoring path is to sit down, pray for wisdom, pray for the Spirit of God to help you rightly divide the word of truth, and start with the basic presupposition that God wants you to understand what he has written. He wants you to understand his revelation to man. The specific point of concern at Thessalonica was about those who had fallen asleep. The idea of referring to death as falling asleep, this figure of speech came to be used because the body of a dead person lied still and appeared to be at rest. Even though the unredeemed used this figure of speech, it had so much more meaning for those in Christ because it points to the truth that when the believer in Christ faces death, they truly are at rest. It points to the truth that being absent from the body for those in Christ is a temporary situation. The early Christians even referred to the places of burial as dormitories or sleeping places because they knew and understood the truth that our bodies will rest until the day we take up our glorified bodies. Paul had in mind the body being considered as asleep, not the soul. Jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It is there that we learn that when we die, our earthly tent, our bodies return to the dust of the ground, but the soul departs to be home with the Lord. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are 
absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Walking by faith is one of the most important statements in the New Testament to understand if you are a believer in Christ. If you don't grasp walking by faith, you will fall into legalism and outward performance instead of an inward walk with Christ. Notice this last expression in verse 13 in our text, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. This is the reason Paul wrote the text we are looking at. By teaching these believers about the return of Christ, they would be better equipped to face the reality of death among the saints. Paul is not saying it is wrong to have sorrow over the loss of a believer, but he is absolutely saying that for those in Christ, the sorrow should be different. It should not be the same as it is for those who have no hope in Christ. Here is what seems to have happened at Thessalonica. From the time Paul and Silas were first with them, some of the believers in Christ at Thessalonica had passed away. The death of these brothers or sisters in Christ had caused some serious heartache in the church. And it would be my understanding that some in the church at Thessalonica thought that if you died before the return of Christ, you'd be at some sort of disadvantage. Maybe they thought they would miss out on things or that they would not take part in the rapture like those alive in Christ at that time. In other words, it would seem that their grief was not just over the loss of a loved one, but grief over what the loved ones might have been missing out on because they died before the return of Christ. Now, certainly we should feel a sense of loss when a believer dies, but at the same time, we also should not grieve like those without hope in Christ. Because we can know, we can have confidence that our brothers and sisters in Christ who have passed on, they're with Jesus Christ right now, and we will be with them for all eternity. Paul was telling the church that having this type of sorrow, this desperate feeling of hopelessness within the body of Christ for the dead was pretty much inexcusable. It was out of place then, and it is out of place now. Go ahead and grieve. Mourn the loss. But the hope we have should stand in complete contrast to the despair of the lost because our hope is grounded in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul builds off this in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. This is the reason they weren't supposed to have this same type of sorrow for those who had died in Christ. The historical facts of the death and resurrection of Christ are the guarantee of the future for those in Christ. This is the very foundation of our faith. The death and resurrection of Christ were predicted so long ago in Scripture. And just as those prophecies came true, so will the prediction of the rapture of the church. This hope we have in Christ is just as certain as Christ's resurrection. Notice it is not just the death of Christ, but it is the death and resurrection of Christ. The two must be kept together. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. Without the resurrection, there's no justification for our faith. The resurrection is where Jesus demonstrated his victory over sin and death. From this, Paul was able to tell the church, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Our hope and future resurrection are tied to the resurrection of Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ has changed death for all those who believe 
for those who believe the gospel of Christ, for those with faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Death is simply separation from the body and going to be with Christ while our bodies sleep in the dust of the earth until they are resurrected, transformed into a new glorious body and reunited with the soul. This is his point where Paul refers to those who sleep in Jesus. But the teaching that Paul wanted the church to understand is that their loved ones in the faith who had departed to go to be with Christ, God will bring them with Jesus at the return of Christ. We will see in the coming verses that this can only refer to the pre-tribulation rapture of the bride of Christ. And what Paul meant at this point is that at the rapture, God will bring all members of the body of Christ, living and dead, back to heaven with Christ. In other words, when a believer dies, their spirit, their soul goes into conscience fellowship with the Lord, while their bodies sleep in the grave, awaiting the rapture. But at the rapture of the church, the dead in Christ will come back with Christ from heaven to meet their resurrected bodies. And Paul's intention here in our text was to tell them their loved ones in Christ would not miss out on anything because when Jesus Christ returns, Christ will bring them with. Take a look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Notice the authority of this teaching. Paul wanted to remind the church this was teaching that was coming from the word of the Lord. And I think the reference is probably to direct revelation from Christ to either Paul or Silas. Remember, Silas in Acts 15 is mentioned as a prophet of the Lord. And keep in mind in Acts 9, Acts 22, Galatians 1, Galatians 2, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we do see references to the Apostle Paul having direct communication with the risen Lord. I think this is another one of these cases where Paul was testifying that this was something that Jesus Christ directly revealed to him. The first part of the revelation from Christ was that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. This teaching should have changed the behavior of those at Thessalonica. The revelation that the living would have no advantage over the dead at the return of Christ. There was simply no need for these men and women to be in distress about those who had died. All believers in Christ in the church age, those alive and those dead at the return of Christ, will all share the same glorious future. The church at Thessalonica could rest assured that the dead in Christ would not miss out. Now, this is actually another text which shows that the rapture does not take place after the tribulation. Because if Paul and Silas had been teaching the tribulation was before the rapture, then they all should have been worried not about the dead in Christ, but about themselves. Because then they face the real possibility of suffering through the tribulation. If the post-tribulation rapture were correct, these believers in Christ at Thessalonica, they should have rejoiced that some of them had died and escaped the tribulation that would be coming. I believe the only way to rightly divide this passage is to understand the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Think this through with me. We who are alive and remain. Paul hoped to be in the company of the living when Jesus Christ returned. He believed that the rapture of the church could come at any moment. Take a look at the next two verses. Starting in verse 16, we read, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, 
and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. These two verses are the bulk of the teaching for the church at Thessalonica of why they could rest assured and be at peace about those who had died. But notice how this starts out, for the Lord himself. The Lord himself will return in his glorified body for his church. I really believe this is at the heart of what Jesus told the disciples in John 14, where he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Christ will leave his throne at the right hand of the Father. Christ will descend and receive us to himself. And notice that we have three statements which give us three different descriptions of this glorious event. The first is that Christ will descend from heaven with a shout. The full meaning of the word used for shout carries the meaning of a shout of command. It implies both authority and urgency. It was often used of a general shouting orders to his troops or a rider shouting to his horse to run faster. Now, this is another one of those areas where there is a little bit of a debate. Is this Christ giving the shout? Is this the voice of the archangel? Are these three separate events or is the shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet three references to the same thing? It is my best understanding that these would seem to be three separate announcements that will come like rapid fire one after another at the return of Christ. And the reason I take this position is because in John chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus said that men will hear his voice and come out of their graves. As far as the trumpet, this brings up the issue of where this trumpet stands in relation to the other trumpets mentioned concerning the end times. Some from the post-tribulation camp see this as referring to the seventh trumpet of the seven trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation. In their line of thinking, this is the trumpet at the end of the tribulation, which would put the rapture after the tribulation. But if you look at Revelation 11 sometime, where the seventh trumpet is listed, there is no way Revelation 11 has the same trumpet in mind. In fact, Revelation 11.15, where the seventh trumpet of Revelation is first sounded, it is not even the end of the tribulation, because the seventh trumpet includes the seven bold judgments of the wrath of God, as described in Revelation 16. It actually introduces the bold judgments that lead to the second coming of Christ meaning that even after the seventh trumpet of Revelation is sounded, more of God's judgment, more of God's wrath is coming upon the earth because it is not yet the end of the tribulation. But here in our text, the trumpet of God is the removal of the church from the earth. Remember, in the word of God, trumpets were used for many different reasons. For the nation of Israel, trumpets sounded at their feasts, at their celebrations. The trumpets would sound as an alarm at a time of war. Basically, they would use the trumpets anytime they needed to gather a crowd or make an announcement. And here the trumpet will be used to assemble the church of Christ to call us home. Head over to 1 Corinthians 15. Here the reference to the trumpet is a parallel passage to what we have in 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, 
and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The trumpet marks the gathering of the Lord's church. The trumpet will blast and the dead in Christ will rise. Now, As we think of this great event, we think of the shout, the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. This is not going to be some quiet event. This will be a major worldwide event. But this does raise another issue. The shout and the trumpet will be heard around the entire planet, which leads many to wonder if the lost will hear these sounds of Christ calling his saints. It honestly reminds me of the call of Saul on the road to Damascus. And by looking at Acts 9 and Acts 22, it becomes clear that those who traveled with him, they heard the sound of a voice, but they couldn't understand the words and they did not see Christ. Another great example of this would be over in the Gospel of John. Because in John 12, Jesus was expressing that his time was drawing near and he knew that he had come to die and suffer on the cross. Listen to what he said, starting in verse 28 of John 12. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. What an amazing little passage. Some thought it had thundered. Some thought an angel had spoken to him. But it was God the Father speaking to God the Son. And based on this passage and based on Paul's encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, we know that God has the ability to communicate with his own while still at the same time not letting the lost fully understand what is being said and what is taking place. Back in our text now in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is what I think will happen at the rapture of the church. Those in Christ will know exactly what is happening. The lost will know something is taking place, but they will not be sure what. Paul makes it known that the dead in Christ will rise first. Those in the church who have gone to be with the Lord, they will be brought back with Christ to receive their resurrection bodies. Then Paul testifies, We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first, but I would not lose too much sleep about it because remember what we read in 1 Corinthians, this entire thing will take place in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Also remind yourself, in that same passage, Paul testified, and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. What a great truth it is. Those alive in Christ will receive glorified bodies without having to pass through death but this still does not give them any advantage over those who have died because we will all be caught up together in the clouds to meet Jesus Christ in the air. What a great reunion in the sky it will be for all those in Christ. Now, this is where we actually get the word rapture from, where it is translated in our Bibles as caught up. 
The English word rapture comes from the Latin verb that was used in the Latin Vulgate to translate the words caught up. So don't tell me the rapture is not taught in the Bible because here it is. And if you want to be a legalist, that is fine. You can call it being caught up. Either way, here it is in the word of God. And the purpose of this great event is for the church of all ages to meet the Lord in the air. What a beautiful statement verse 17 ends with, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now the Greek, how this was first written, actually reads even a little bit better. Listen to how it reads, and thus evermore with the Lord shall we be. Where the Lord is, is where his glorified church will be. The bride of Christ will be united with Christ for all eternity. What is the application for the church? Verse 18 has the answer. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What a great comfort this would be to the church at Thessalonica, knowing that the future of the dead in Christ is secure. There is solid comfort, encouragement, and hope when we stand beside the grave of a believer in Christ because we have a glorious future with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul expected a practical and immediate response to the doctrine of the rapture of the church. We are to remind one another of these great truths as we face our own death. And this should be the steady comfort for us each day thinking that today could be the day that the Lord may come. I think most of us by now are pretty well familiar with the sinking of the Titanic. In its day, it was the largest movable object that men had ever made. It weighed in at an impressive 46,000 tons. It took up four city blocks and each of its four smokestacks were the size of a three-story house. It took 3,000 men two years to build, and it had three million rivets holding that massive hull together. The people that boarded the ship in 1912 were confident, and the papers of the day were hailing this ship as the unsinkable ship. The people who built it were so confident of its seaworthy nature that they only tested it for eight hours on the Atlantic Ocean. And when it came time for this great ship to set sail from Southampton in England to New York, people boarded it with a sense of confidence in that ship like no other. Now their confidence had little to do with their future because as you and I both know, it sank on its maiden voyage when it struck an iceberg, ripping holes in its side before it finally sank on April 15th of 1912. This event caught everyone by surprise, even the people on the ship while it was sinking Many of them didn't believe it was really going down. As the first lifeboats were let down, part of the reason they weren't even full was because people refused to get in them. Each lifeboat could hold 64 people. The first lifeboat that was dropped from the Titanic only had 28 people on board. People could not bring themselves to step off of what they thought was this enormous, unsinkable ship onto a tiny lifeboat in the middle of the ocean. What does it take to step into a lifeboat? It takes faith. Can you imagine stepping off of the deck of a massive ship, the biggest in its day, to get into a little lifeboat that would be tossed about by the waves of the freezing waters of the ocean? But this is exactly what it is like for a person to step off of everything they have believed about their future and their plans for their life on this earth to step into a relationship with Christ. To be willing to step into a lifeboat 
you have got to be willing to admit that the ship you are on is sinking, that you will not make it on your own, and there has to be trust or faith in the lifeboat. It was about one in the morning when the first lifeboat was dropped into the frigid waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Some people were sleeping in their rooms when they felt the jar of the iceberg. Many of them just rolled over and went back to sleep. Many didn't even pay attention to the noise or to the jar of the ship as any kind of indicator of things to come, so they just ignored the signs. When the Titanic first started out, there were three different classes of passengers that boarded when it left Southampton. But when the ship sank, there were only two classes, those who had been rescued and those who had not. At the headquarters that ran the ship back in Liverpool, London, they had an office for White Star Lines. As the survivors were picked up by passing ships and were making their way to the United States, they started wiring specific information about these passengers to the office at Liverpool. Outside the office, there were two boards, one on each side of the steps. Facing the sidewalk, there was one board on the right, and it said, those known to be saved. The board on the left said, those known to be lost. And when the wires would come into the main office and they would learn specific information about people who had been rescued or lost, a man would walk down the steps with a piece of cardboard with someone's name on it. And all of the people gathered there, watching, waiting to find out information about their loved ones. They would hold their breath as the employee of the White Star Lines would either take a turn to the right or to the left. And then in silence, their name would be pinned on the list that said, known to be lost, or on the one which said, known to be saved. The Bible does teach us that there is a book in heaven called the Lamb's Book of Life. Anyone whose name is not written in it will one day be cast into the lake of fire. Your first priority is to make sure that your name is written in that book. If you have already taken that step of faith, if you've already gotten into the lifeboat, take comfort and take hope and live your life like a man or woman who knows that you made the right decision, confident of our trust, our faith in the living Christ. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3 teach us, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. The victory over death is ours through Christ, so let us live in a manner worthy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Before we sign off, just a quick reminder about our book, What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. You can find out more about it on returntotheword.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. And I pray that you will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.